1: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
2: I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain.
3: Mate, this is just impossible Too many people were confused uh, you bet you are uh, you bet I am I have always believed in miracles That's not a policy
2: Not now, not ever I mean... <laughs> These comments are completely inappropriate
4: oh, I'm sure she's
3: right yeah,
5: But I ain't spending any time on it
3: How pathetic You're a classic space invader
5: Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures You should be ashamed of yourselves Oh, fair
6: shake of the sauce bottle,
1: mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, bringing you a hearty serving of politics and public affairs twice weekly. I'm Martin Pearce and I am temporarily tending to the podcast barbecue today with Mark Kenny unavailable. We're produced by Policy Forum at Crawford School of Public Policy and we do so in partnership with the ANU Australian Studies Institute. Now today we've got something a bit special for you. This is no standard bulk buy mystery meat supermarket snag but something premium grade from the deli lightly spiced with paprika and cayenne and if that metaphor sounds a bit overcooked hopefully today's episode won't be. Over the last few weeks, we've taken a look back at some of our favorite moments on the podcast since we began in April last year. And given the year we've had, that really feels like a lifetime ago. But over the last 18 months or so, we've had an incredible lineup of experts drawn from academia, journalism, and public affairs. Like any barbecue, it's much better in good company. So from analysis of last year's federal election campaign to the coronavirus crisis and everything in between, today we'd like to share with you our democracy sausage, the best bits compilation. First up, we go way back to May 2019. It was right after Scott Morrison's miracle win. It feels like a lifetime ago now, given everything that has unfolded since. In this episode, Mark spoke with Sky News Chief political reporter, Kieran Gilbert, and regular guest, Dr. Maria Taflaga, about the election result that very few people saw coming. And the panel discussed the now PM's fight to the finish, his self-belief, and whether or not Bill Shorten and the Labor Party's caution led them to electoral disaster.
7: I think as well, a potent part of his message, and it might have sounded hoaxy, it was a bit cheesy, uh, you have a go, you get a go, that sort of message. but. It's potent because it targets the you know traditional Howard Battler, the mm. the, uh, the aspirational voter that Labor did not have a message for. They did not have a message for them.
8: Yeah, these are the, what they call in America the Reagan Democrats almost, yeah. you know, well, those sort of people y- who, who are working class but who are able to be dragged across to the conservative side because- they have aspirations. They have
7: aspirations, and and, and already Anthony Albanese has said we need a message on how we grow the economy, not just share it. That was his opening pitch mm. for the leadership, and I think that this was, you know, in hindsight, it, it, it was a looming vulnerability for them, and and Morrison filled that gap by saying by targeting those voters, or as he as he put it explicitly in his victory speech. The quiet Australians who are going about their work day by day, but essentially what they are, is that aspirational class. And mm-hmm. he's right across the country. I think that's a a message that has resonated. He's a better communicator, and he was disciplined in terms of keeping that message.
8: It's interesting. I was, uh, li- you know, listening uh, intently to uh, Arthur Sinodinos, uh, obviously a great Liberal Party strategist, uh, one of the really wise heads on the government side. He was. Fronting the uh, the ABC's election night broadcast uh, um, for for the government, and he made a couple of interesting observations. One of them was about Scott Morrison, and he said that the thing is, from the moment Morrison took over, even before that, but from the moment Morrison took over the leadership, Senator Dennis was noting that he believed that is Morrison believed he could do it. So belief, and I'm not talking about his faith, which we can also talk about, but, but just this in in inordinate sort of unshakable belief that Scott Morrison had that he could prosecute an argument and win that argument just, you know, with sheer sort of force of will. Uh, it does seem to have been the key dynamic in oh, this election campaign. It's a key
9: characteristic of, um, you know, prime ministerial aspirants. And I, if you talk to anyone who's ever worked with Bill Shorten, You'll you'll get a sense that he had a similar belief, but perhaps not in this campaign, or uh, you know, or he just simply went quite. Well, that's awry. a really interesting point. Did, yeah. Do
8: you think Bill Shorten kind of went missing? Everyone talks about the fact that he, uh, you know, the, the assessment, and I certainly h- held this view at the time. The assessment in the first couple of weeks of the campaign, he really did seem quite cautious. He he, he was he was in this odd position of being the opposition leader defending himself rather than attacking you know to try and take government there was a sort of a reversal of roles there and and so yes that belief question is interesting I think he did have this long-term belief that he would one day be Prime Minister and I think
7: I think it, that belief actually having watched him closely in this campaign I think it went all the way up till till Saturday. I think he believed he was going to win. Yeah, well, he, I think he believed he, he believed he was, believed going, he to win, was going to win. But my point today,
8: my point isn't. so – I guess that's right. But I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm getting at is that there was some, there was some cautiousness there on the part of Labor in the campaign. Labor had a bold agenda, and everyone talks about the, the sort of political courage of its agenda. Completely understandable that that argument. But in terms of the campaign itself, once it was up and running, I thought there was a sort of a tremulousness in in the way it put forward its position. Well, absolutely. Think, he I was think, reticent
7: think, to do debates. He didn't yeah. do the press club in the final week. He was he, he was cautious, and I think maybe it was playing safe because they thought they were going to win. But little did they know the polling, their polling, uh, internal and published, were, mm. were wrong. Um, he misjudged the character, I think, of Australia, basically, with his message. Whereas whereas Morrison came in like a middle-order batsman
8: uh, mm. in in a match where they were unlikely to overhaul the total and, and just to started playing his shots. Yeah. I mean, there was a freedom in him you know, as a batsman, you know, he freed his shoulders he and just… had
9: nothing to lose. Yes. He, lose, he yeah. it was
7: in northern Tasmania the final day. On Saturday, he was campaigning to the last bit. Yeah, minute.
8: yeah. And I think that's really telling. In fact, if you look at what he did in those last uh, few hours, the hours that everyone thought had been obliterated by the, you know, the grief and shock of the do- death of Bob mm-hmm. Hawke on that Thursday night in the last week, you know, um, Morrison, a- as you say, he was in… Northern Tasmania on polling day, you know. So uh, the, the, I think he was the first prime minister to be in Tasmania on election day since Joseph Lyons, who happened to be a Tasmanian. Tasmanian, yeah. Um, so that kind of should have told people that there's something happening there. That la- they think these la- two Labor seats in Northern Tasmania are gettable. He was also in Longman, I think, um, on the day before, on the Friday, um, you know. So uh, and Longman, of course, is another uh, Liberal gain. In this election, so yeah, um, amazing self-belief and amazing surgical focus. Almost like this guy handled this like a marketing exercise. He worked out where his markets were. He targeted his messages very, very
7: carefully, and then he just hammered them. Shorten was so convinced that he was he had the right template that he convinced himself, and he said so many times that the times suit us. Mm. He said that a lot. The times suit do. me, you know, uh, but they didn't because he put all his eggs in the basket of trying to help those on the lowest and middle, you know, the lowest in part of the income range, but not recognizing that those you nudge, you know, most of those people want to be doing better uh, as well. So I just think that they lost that message of opportunity, which they could have incorporated into their fairness agenda.
9: I think they became a bit um, complacent in a way. Like- uh, and it sort of shows in what Tanya Plibersek after, afterwards said. She sort of said, well, we wanted, we didn't want to get down in the mud and we wanted to sort of, you know, have the moral high ground and, and, and campaign on our agenda. But what they sort of failed to do was to constantly remind voters during this campaign what a troubled government this has been. Exactly. You know, it's a, it's a government that uh, not only has changed its leaders several times, but, um, has lost control of the Parliament, was so afraid of uh coming back to Parliament that they only sat for a handful of days this year. So they haven't been really doing their jobs. Mm. Uh, and then when they when Parliament did come back, they actually lost control of their own agenda and had legislation forced upon them. And not to mention the fact that all the underlying structural problems within this government um, before the Morrison win remained, right? Yeah. It, they cannot agree on climate change. They cannot agree on other policy directions. They've
8: got no energy policy at all. They couldn't even agree on that.
9: And there's a litany of sort of, you know, like favors for mates stories and. Yeah. Perhaps what Labor really needed to do, the negative portion of their campaign was not necessarily to run a character assassination upon Scott Morrison or, uh, you know, to make up a Medicare scare or so on and so forth, but just to remind voters that this government has not done a good job of serving citizens. It's done a very good job of concerning itself with its own internal
7: it shouldn't have been close. It, to be honest, because you, you, everything you've said is right, it should not have been close. And Labor's advertising wasn't as good. The government was. They much did. More they effective. did run a
8: fair few pictures of Peter Dutton through Victoria. D- d- they didn't get a single thing in Victoria that wasn't already penciled into their no, column no. after the election. You know, they didn't get a single seat that wasn't already penciled I don't in think, from the redistribution. I don't think
7: uh, their ads and the, certainly the unions. There was nowhere near as potent as the bill you can't afford. That that yeah. was the best out of the campaign and quite clearly you know it it was enough to contribute to this victory,
8: yeah, it really is. I mean, it's easy to be uh, sort of wise in hindsight, I guess, but it, very. <laughs> yeah, I find it not much easier than it actually <laughs> it? I mean, I, as I say, I'll say it again. I predicted that Labor would win this election because of all of the fundamentals, Maria, that you just talked about, and yeah. one of the other ones you didn't even mention was, uh, you know, their their the women problem. The fact that prominent women were walking away in droves, you know, the, and standing
9: the, as independent, yeah, um, and they or, six or, took a seat from Tony yeah, Abbott,
8: yeah, exactly, yeah. Or, or just simply giving up.
1: We return to the end of 2019 in the next clip where we revisit our conversation with veteran journalist and now ABC Insider's host, David Spears. In this segment, David reflects on his role in developing Australia's 24-hour news industry in this time at Sky News. He discusses the initial resistance the channel received from the offices of the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition who were reticent to have backbenchers stray from the talking points of the day and the enormous change that this has brought about in Australian politics.
8: Let's give it a listen. It's quite a different uh, um, process, I suppose, or demands on you than than you've been used to. I mean, one of the things about what you've mm. done at Sky has been to be there through the whole development of this idea of the 24-hour news channel or the yeah. constant news channel, and you've really pioneered that. What do you think has been the major shift that you've seen over that 20 years in terms of the way politics is done and mediated, I suppose, uh, to the people? It's been an enormous change.
10: Um when i started at sky we we started up a bureau in in parliament house and it was just me and there'd never been 24 hour news channel coverage of Australian politics before we'd seen CNN we'd seen you know Fox News had been there for a little bit and, and B-Sky in London uh, as well with the 24-hour news channel so we had a few ideas but no, but you know in in many ways politics in Washington and London are far more dramatic uh, than than what's happening here so it was a very different thing to try and make Australian politics interesting hour after hour in, in an Australian context uh, and not always easy um, but you know we we started with a few ideas, but really it was about making it up as we went along, feeling our way, what worked, what didn't, um, yeah. and being serious about politics. Like being, being serious to- about totally it. dedicated
8: yeah. to politics.
10: That's right, and and treating our audience like uh, viewers who wanted to know more about politics weren't just watching the six o'clock network news where the politics story might be, you know, halfway down the bulletin. These were people engaged and interested in politics, and we wanted to treat them uh, with respect and seriously. So, yeah, we covered it in a lot of detail, a lot of depth, you know, t- at times, and you know, sitting there in the studio with me mm-hmm. many, many times over the years, you can get right down the rabbit hole on some issues, but the audience for that, you know, news channel purpose uh, like that, they're interested, they're into that. So it was a different different type of journalism. So that. That changed, I think, a lot of the way the political process uh, started. It took a while, but, you know, when we started to get um, backbenchers coming on for panel discussions, I mean, you see it everywhere now, mm. but I can tell you back when we started doing this, we copped a lot of resistance from the Prime Minister's office and the opposition leader's office in particular. They didn't want these backbenchers uh, getting on television and saying the wrong thing, saying something that was slightly off what the talking points of the day were, and there was great risk they saw in doing that for very little reward because there was such a small audience. Um, so we got a lot of resistance from that. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. You know, a lot of MPs got pulled and told, don't go and sit in the Sky studio. Uh, eventually things changed. They all understood this is an important part of the conversation now and a good way for politicians to get the message out in from a number of different Uh, faces uh, in a number of different ways. Sure, they don't always agree, but I think that's been a really good thing for transparency, for opening up debate. And as I say, since then, we've got the ABC News channel. We've got lots of panel shows everywhere doing this
1: now. David Spears there. That was a terrific discussion. Now, moving from the world of journalism to the academy, in this next clip, we hear from Nobel Laureate and Vice-Chancellor of here at the Australian National University, Professor Brian Schmidt. Recorded in March this year, in the wake of Australia's devastating bushfire crisis, Professor Schmidt discusses his weariness with non-experts throwing up, as he describes it, crap science in the climate debate.:
8: When you were asked about this on AM by my friend Cyber Lane, I, I remember one word particularly that came out of your mouth quite early in the answer, which is that you, you said you were weary about the, um, you know, the debate. On climate change, uh, around the science and so forth, uh, how how frustrating has that been? And as a, as a follow up to that, th- there seems to be a shift going on now, a pivot towards the sort of technology you've just been talking about. In the end, is all this sort of debate going to get overtaken by technological advances?
3: So I'm weary because we're continuing to go over the same old crap, and mm. a lot of it's just crap. Mm. And I don't mind. And indeed, I insist upon people who are experts coming in and questioning our understanding. That is part of science. And that is a great thing to occur, expert to expert. And that's how how science works. Uh, The weariness comes from people who are not experts continually throwing up crap science in public and just creating a distraction, red herrings to the real debate. Mm. In the end, science is never black and white. It's always about probabilities. And, you know, there's the probabilities that we have a uh, four or five degree uh, warming of the planet coming up and the impacts that cause. And, you know, when I multiply those things out, we need to be working really fast at mitigating that risk as fast as we can. Technology is a really important aspect to that, but it's not just technology. We have to build up resilience for the change that's already coming, uh, and that means being able to adapt. And you don't—adaptation is not sufficient on itself, but we're going to have to do that because the change is coming and it's coming fast. At the same time. We do need to create new technologies but we also have to just change our behaviors and get people thinking about this through every aspect of our planning uh, within society. It's it's just such a huge thing. It needs to be integrated into uh, our thinking on a day-to-day basis of everything that our society does because if we don't – if we get this wrong, it really is going to be catastrophic.
1: Plenty of food for thought there. Now, moving into this year, in August, Mark sat down with demographer at the Australian National University, Dr. Liz Allen. In the episode, The Future of Us, they discussed her book of the same name and what demography tells us about Australian society. It was a brilliant discussion, really entertaining and very informative. And in this clip, they discuss the myth of a classless Australia. And Liz shares some of her own personal experience as a self-described former poor kid.
11: So take, for example, something I'm keenly interested in, given my own particular background um, as a single point of demography, is, (laughs) is this idea that um, we know from, from the literature that, um, and from previous research that there's very little social mobility. That is that the circumstances of your birth, the circumstances of your parents, the socioeconomic circumstances of your parents determines much of your life, the trajectory of your life course, your level of education, your income, your social standing, and that, to me, is quite jarring, this idea, you know, we hear demography is destiny. At an individual level, we certainly see um, that to some degree. And I think in Australia we like to think we're fair and that people, if you have a go, you get a go and you'll be right, mate.
8: We like to think we're fair and we also like
11: to think we're sort of classless. And it's not true. And it's not true. And that's something that I think as a former poor kid, who has, you know, experienced disadvantage.
8: But who now has a PhD. So, in <laughs> a sense, you bucked that trend.
11: I'm a deviant. I am a deviant. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of, a, and it's actually known. It's known as a deviant case, one that's dropped out, um, and gone against the grain. That carries some responsibility, right? Mm. That I, I speak for, for the, for those that are left behind. But here's the thing about poverty and disadvantage is that it never leaves you. So I'm also a teen mum. I'm no longer a teen, but I still say I'm a teen mum. Why? Because there are, there are epigenetic factors that come with, um, with those experiences early in life and even before your birth that influence you as a kind of genetic, um, person in space. Um, and it, it changes the way that, your brain processes um kind of the cognitive processes of scarcity. So there's you know there's a, a saying that um uh, and a belief certainly that poor people are dumb when it comes to money. Poor people aren't dumb when it comes to money. Again, research shows that what happens is when you're faced with scarcity, your cognitive processes change because you're so caught up in trying to survive that you don't focus on or you cannot focus on outward looking and, and that stays with you. Because I,
8: those outward looking things are, are much more abstract. They're, they're far less tangible. The idea of uh, an overseas holiday or a new mm-hmm. car next year or of saving for your retirement or whatever. These are, these are quite secondary to a much, in, in a much more hand to mouth existence. And so, in a sense, they're quite abstract.
11: You may not get to retirement. Precisely. Right? And yeah. that's the thing is that when you're surviving, and you're thinking about how am I going to live today, tomorrow, or feed my kids? You're not thinking about a holiday because odds are you ain't getting one. No. <laughs> and well, retirement. You, really, you don't really imagine it. No, sense, because yeah. it's not, it's not a possibility. You're talking mm. about mm. the fundamental of survival.
1: That was a great discussion. Do check that one out if you haven't listened to us. It's called The Future of Us. Now, let's move from Australia to global issues, because as the Black Lives Matters protests erupted globally, on Democracy Sausage, we examined Australia's own shameful past on the episode, You Stand on a Plinth of Lies. In June this year, Indigenous Australian journalist Stan Grant joined us on Democracy Sausage, where he discussed how Indigenous people speaking truth to power is often seen as an assault on history. In this powerful clip, he asks why police are sent to guard statues, but Indigenous heritage sites are legally blown up by mining companies. Let's have a listen.
12: I think the point's been made uh, really well here, and that is that statues are not history. You know, statues are a representation of who we were and who we are, uh, and the difficulty for us in trying to have this conversation—it's uh, if we raise it, and I'm speaking here as as an Indigenous Australian—if we raise it, we are seen as somehow attacking the state. That our truth is seen as an historical war, a war on history. We have the Prime Minister using that language. I don't want to engage in a history war when our truth when our attempt to try to speak to this power is categorized as an attack as a war when it, is, when it is weaponized it makes it so much more difficult to do as Paul was discussing was describing there to approach this in a democratic way i mean you know i i raised i thought very gently 3 years ago at the height of the Confederate statue issue in the United States, the question of of the Cook statue in Hyde Park, which still proclaims that he discovered this territory in 1770. Um, our High Court doesn't believe that. Our laws don't represent that. Our welcomes to country tell us that is not true. But a statue that stands above us all in our biggest city still proclaims this as fact. Um, in even suggesting that we might revisit that, that we might even look at, at an ancillary plaque or some way of, of representing that that view is now redundant. I had the Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, accuse me of being a Stalinist. I had the Daily Telegraph describe me as Taliban stan. I mean, to, to even broach this subject, we are seen as attacking the state. We we saw the image over the past week of a ring of police standing around this inanimate object, around the Cook statue, which at worst is, is vandalised and you can clean it, um, standing around that while we've had Indigenous sites, heritage sites, blown up by Rio Tinto in Western Australia. And that should tell us everything about what we value. That we will ring a statue with police and our law will allow for a mining company to destroy our heritage. That's what speaks to the reality of power still in Australia.
1: Stan Grant there with a powerful message. Now, Jim Chalmers is shadow treasurer. He's an economist and he's the person that many are tipping as a future Labor leader. At the end of April this year, in the wake of Australia's first wave of COVID-19 cases, he discussed why Australians are frightened for their futures after the crisis and why the country needs to go beyond the partisan politics to address it. Let's have a listen to what Jim had to say.
5: It's not the most important thing, but one of the galling things about this is, you know, you would have seen on Four Corners the other night when, when David Spears did that show about the government's response. You know, all the same characters who have been uh, deriding government intervention in the economy, saying that stimulus is a farce, you know, saying that there was some kind of debt and deficit disaster, there they all lined up to take credit for the decisions taken uh, during this period. And I think that's as good an illustration of any um, that, uh, you know, that that history is casting its own verdict on, on how they behaved then in 2009 and how they've behaved since uh, and the most important thing is that they, you know, they have learned some kind of lesson. We welcome the fact that they've had a change of heart. Clearly, when, uh, economies are in crisis and, and people's, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Australians at jobs are threatened, then that calls for, um, you know, governments to contemplate things that they wouldn't contemplate in normal times. That's the lesson of the GFC. That's the lesson, uh, from now as well. I think the, the main thing that, well, one of the other considerations as well is, if they've learned the lesson of 2009, we want to make sure that they've learned the lesson of 2014 as well, and you would have covered that first horror budget of this, um, you know, the then uh, Abbott hockey government, uh, and what they did then was they, you know, they managed coming out of the crisis badly by asking the most vulnerable people in the community to, to, to carry a disproportionate load when it came to paying the debt back, so we hope that they've learned from that as well and not just from the earlier period. Absolutely. Uh, you know, people in tears, you know, and, and so they're, they're petrified. But the, the other thing about that is that's the near-term fear that they have. But they're also really frightened about what the future looks like. And they don't want the story of the, the future Australia, which is written after this crisis subsides, they don't want to be written out of that story. They're, they're frightened about whether they fit uh, in the economy that exists after this crisis. They know it's been a big reset they know that all of the old certainties have sort of, in one way or another, been blown up. And so the worried conversations they have in hushed tones after the kids go to bed are about what does the future look like for them? And they've got commitments. Household debt was already at record highs before the crisis hit. They've got all kinds of commitments. Uh, and so I think one of the reasons why the onus is on us to come back to some of those earlier questions, to be responsible and constructive and why the onus is on Scott Morrison to be more inclusive and, and, and to seek consensus more genuinely and to involve the states uh, is because this isn't actually in the end about a political contest. It's about what the story of Australia is after that and whether, you know, real people and real communities are written into that story and right now if you talk to enough people there is enough fear that they're going to miss out, that there's going to be a generation of people who miss out after this. And that's the most important thing we have to focus on.
8: What do you think is the, uh, within within that framework of focusing on that, what do you think is the uh, the key to that? I mean, wages, for example, obviously jobs are important. Going back to the point about changing the the consultation time for EBAs. I mean the logic of that was a lot of industries are facing a lot of employers are facing dramatically reduced demand and 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 difficult circumstances and so might need to make quite quick adjustments to you know to their uh, to their operations um you know that's that's kind of understandable at one level um but what 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 do you think looking forward is the is the key to the recovery? Is it to do something about stagnant wages? And if it is, what is that thing? Well, you know, how do we unlock wages growth? For example,
5: well, the most important thing is you keep as many people attached, you know, in the time being because that impacts on how you recover out of this. You know, you would know from the early nineties recession that a lot of people who lost their jobs then didn't find their way back in the labour market, particularly older male workers that was a massive massive problem and so it matters what we do now to that to that challenge to what the recovery uh, looks like.
1: Now in our last clip before we take a quick break we stay with the Australian government's coronavirus response. What is it that drives government decisions about what policies get funding and what don't? many would say that it's ideology but as economist Richard Dennis explained to us there is a big difference between ideology and interests and very often it's the latter driving choices in so many crucial policy areas
8: yes absolutely now maria i don't want to uh, you know beat up on the government unnecessarily or talk our own book as uh, as people employed in the education sector but um, going to the the point that both you and Richard are making here, which is uh, about the role of ideology in a lot of these decisions. I mean, it does it, it it does feel like there's some fairly strong ideology in the decision initially not to include the university sector in the major uh, protection. Uh, programs that they've run for this COVID crisis. And then, so at the top end of, of the education cycle, the, the university sector, and at the bottom end of the education cycle, the even more important early childhood education sector is having that uh, assistance withdrawn rather early. Yet we still see quite substantial subsidisation of um, particularly the private school sector in this country. So there's a lot of ideology here, isn't there?
2: Look, I don't think there's ideology at all, Mark. Um, I think it's just interests. Uh, Ideology (laughs) refers to – no, it's a big difference. Uh, Ideology refers to a consistent set of ideas. Uh, And ideology shouldn't be a dirty word. People should have consistency in their sets of ideas. So so let's break that down. As I said before, you know, the government loves to subsidise some forms of energy, brackets fossil fuel, Uh, They don't like to subsidise other forms of energy, such as renewables. They love to subsidise some forms of education, like private schools. They don't like to subsidise other forms of education, like public universities. They made JobKeeper available, by the way, to the privately owned (laughs) universities. Uh, Gladys Berejiklian, often criticised for being sort of a zealot when it comes to privatisation, literally spent a billion dollars of taxpayers' money to buy a football stadium so she could knock it down and build a new one. There is no ideology at play here whatsoever. (laughs) there's just interests there are just preferences there are just desires and and i actually think we, we, we flatter people unfairly when we call them ideologues again it's hard to be an ideologue it's hard to be consistent it's hard to keep standing up for one side of the argument it's actually very easy just to always give money to your friends and to always hold it back from your opponents so uh yeah there's some clear patterns here but they're not patterns around the size of government. They're not patterns around the role of regulation. They're just patterns of uh, who are the preferred groups that typically get cash uh, and who are the preferred groups that don't.
1: It's a really thought-provoking discussion with Richard Dennis there. Do give that one a listen. So let's take a quick break there, but we'll be back with you in just a moment.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com
13: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back to this special Democracy Sausage episode where we are revisiting some of our favourite moments from gathering around the hot plate of politics and public affairs. In this second half, we move from the domestic to the international. First up, we start our little virtual jaunt overseas in the United Kingdom. A no-deal Brexit which is just weeks away, would clearly have a devastating impact on Britain's economy. So why do so many UK voters seem to want it? In August last year, I spoke to the host of the then-Romaniacs, it's now being renamed to Oh God, What Now? podcast, Roz Taylor. And Roz explained why No Deal will be catastrophic and why those messages aren't getting through to voters, and indeed, why some Britons have, as she says, a yearning for chaos. It's a terrific interview. Let's have a listen to it. What about the European Union? I mean, he's sort of power, promising a kind of can-do attitude, of all about positivity, and that will mm. a, a, achieve a result. How are the EU going to respond to that? Will they also be swept up in in his positivity?
13: No, the EU dislikes Boris Johnson. It has just disliked him ever since he was a young journalist in Brussels in the 90s when he was making things up about things like, (laughs) shall I say sausages? I'm pretty sure it was sausages. It was certainly bananas.
1: The bendy Um, bananas. The bendy
13: bananas, yeah. Uh, And all kinds of things that were supposed to be... uh, affecting our national pride and sovereignty. And it has disliked him ever since then when he realised the power of the EU, to, that it could be the, the way he could deploy the European institutions in the service of populism. One of the reasons why Johnson won the leadership was because of a lot of entryism. In the party, a lot of people who were previously members of UKIP, um, the UK Independence Party, which has been around since the uh, early nineties in various forms, joined the Conservative Party specifically so that they could vote in the leadership election and get Boris Johnson. And that's one of the reasons why he triumphed. So they are not representative anymore. Having said that, they have, they and the Brexit Party between them have managed to pull public opinion towards the acceptability of no deal, which is the real thing that has changed. I mean, I, I hold Theresa May partly responsible, at least for this, largely responsible, because she used to say no deal is better than a bad deal. And that was, you know, bollocks to use a <laughs> British expression. And But she said it quite early on, and it meant that it, it normalised the idea of no deal. And also, of course, there's the idea that that people think there's a game show in Britain that's been around for a while and it involves someone saying deal or no deal. And if you go for no deal, nothing changes. And so that contributed to the idea that no deal meant stasis. And it doesn't. It means chaos.
1: Moving on from Brexit, but staying in the UK, in May this year, we were joined by a Europe correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, bevan shields on the episode the nhs and a nation on its knees bevan shared his terrifying personal account of catching covid19 in the uk and his experience of the much-loved national health service which was being crippled at the height of the pandemic
8: you were also desperately ill can you talk us through your own personal experience of that
14: yeah, it wasn't a fun time, and I'm glad it's over. To be honest, uh, I'd actually started <laughs> <laughs> started covering coronavirus when it first took hold in Northern Italy, and I never really imagined. I mean, I knew there was a risk, but I never really imagined then that I could get it um, at some point. And I didn't get it from uh, Italy. I ended up getting it when I was well well and truly back here in. London and I I'd been working hard for a good good few months really really hard and I just woke up one day and felt absolutely exhausted really drained um my body was a bit sore uh so I asked for a couple of days off because I just thought I was I was tired I was exhausted uh and then gradually over the next few days other symptoms developed my neck and head felt like someone had really someone had trampled all over it um, uh, and my body felt like it had been hit by baseball bats, and then the telltale uh, fever and, and cough set in. And the fever, in particular, was was horrendous. I've never I've had the flu before, and never ever had anything like this. Uh, and the cough was unbelievably persistent, and ultimately it ended up affecting my breathing. And I actually hadn't realised how bad my breathing had become until I, I got better uh, and I and I remembered what it felt like to not have to, to struggle to breathe. And there was one night in particular where I got up uh, and was in the bathroom and had a shower and was just so exhausted by the whole thing, so struggling for air that I, I slumped to the floor and was holding my chest and, and couldn't breathe and was on the tiles for half an hour and had to, had to climb back to bed literally on my hands and knees to get there so it wasn't very fun and I ended up having to call the ambulance Uh, that was the advice from the NHS Uh, they came and said look yes you're sick but your local hospital which actually happened to be the one that the Boris Johnson was in uh, they basically said it's very full uh, and we're not really sure what they might be able to do for you there Uh, so I decided to stay home and rode it out and luckily got uh, got better.
8: Yeah, that was the critical night, wasn't it? When you could have gone either way and they were sort of saying to you that if you went there, you, you might end up in a, in a corridor and that unless you really need to go there, you might, you might be better off staying where you are and sort of left it in your hands. And you made that decision. I saw a, a message from you around that time. I think it was on Twitter or it may have been a text message to some of your friends, um, of which I was one, um, that really, I mean, I found it. Very shocking because you were the first person I knew and cared for that was, um, affected by it. And, uh, it, it, it just sounded so worrying. And then I didn't hear anything for a, a few days. Uh, and that was obviously the, the worst part of it for you. And mm. you, you live alone, right? In, in, um.
14: Yeah. And that's, or, that the made me, the, it, it was a reminder to me that as a journalist, there's a, there's a story behind each of these d- daily numbers that we see each day, not just the horrendous number of deaths, but the number of people who've actually got it. And, it. and it is true that the vast majority of people who get it have either mild conditions or they're asymptomatic, but there are a lot of people who, in the UK who have had this, landed in hospital, or had it and tried to do the right thing and not increase the pressure on the public Health system and stay at home and ride it out and and not had an in, an enjoyable experience and I think we will when we look back at this over the next year or two there's an increasing focus now on what not just the official toll but what's termed the, the number of excess deaths and that's the number of deaths that are being recorded uh, across the country at this time of year compared to the five year average for this time of year and that shows that there 's possibly maybe you know, fifty five thousand people who have died over and above what we would normally expect for this time of year, and that figure doesn 't match up with the official death figure, which is about thirty five thousand so there's something there 's something going on there are a lot more people suffering i think than, than we than we realize
1: Our thanks to Bevan for sharing that story. Now, one of Ireland's best known commentators, Fintan O'Toole, joined us in mid March for an episode which was called The Era of Existential Risk. It was a terrific and engaging and funny and thought provoking episode. So do give it, a, give it a listen if you haven't already. Now, in the episode, he discusses how neoliberalism led to a period of complacency about disease and argues that now is a time for big government and a public health focus to tackle COVID-19. He makes the case that infection has in fact defined progressive change over centuries and that COVID-19 may well do the same another point, there was a suggestion that some of
6: this
8: was, you know, part of a plot or a hoax or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, yes, really very
4: worrying. The foreign virus, is, 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 yeah. you know, that it's obviously – it's a foreign virus which is attacking America. You know, it's not, nothing yeah. – you know, it's a it, – it, the, the nationalist narrative is 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 being imposed on it. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to be um, gloomy about it, but I, I, I would be very worried if I was in the United States. I, I actually think the U.S. is is, is possibly the place – other than very poor countries with no health systems, but, you know, in the developed world, I think it's the place I would least like to be now because you have 35 million people who have no, 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 35 million workers who have no sick leave, as you mm-hmm. know. You have health systems which are, you know, not designed for, for, uh, for any kind of equality of access. You have 11 million undocumented people who are afraid to go to the doctor. Uh, and you have Trump, and you've all that kind of, you know. And you just have that
8: uh, completely kind of dysfunctional system, really. It's all sort of yep. disaggregated. Uh, it th- there are, um, yep. you know, limited uh, scope that the the federal government has in in terms of uh, ensuring all of this. You've got, as you say, just the the failure of of uh, uh, health insurance to be anything like universal, like we have in yep. this country. Uh, it's a, a really very kind of vulnerable situation, and a certain amount of official denial. Deep into
4: this crisis has not helped, and it's been very deep, as you, you know. As you say, it's 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 you know starting with the hoax stuff, and yeah. I remember. I mean, Trump has a record of saying, um, you know. Uh, I, he's an anti vaxxer basically. You know, mm. these vaccines are very dangerous. You know, and the, so th- this is the messaging that he's been putting out to his followers. You know, and and the sort of nexus that he's in is very anti-vaxer, sort of thing. You well, he so you've might got know, all that. Apparently,
8: stuff. it turns you orange. He's
4: got, uh, <laughs> well, got so the personal <laughs> experience. What happens? Uh, but, you know, it, the, the it, it, I suppose it's it's what this thing is showing us, isn't it? That it's 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 shining a very brutal light on political cultures and political systems. Indeed. And and I, I don't know how you think about it, but it, it. It seems to me this is the end of the era of political risk that we've been in, really since the since the the, the bank great banking crisis. Uh, you know, where public trusts in governments uh, collapse, public trust in experts co- collapse. Not for unre- uh, you know for for for, for bad reasons, because a lot of the experts were telling us that you know everything was perfectly safe in the financial world. So it, 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 seems to me we've almost been, you could think about the 21st century so far in terms of three waves of risk, you know, there's the financial one. Yeah. Um, uh, which then people respond to with this political risk, this willingness to take political risks and say, well, they're all liars, they're all buffoons, mm-hmm. there's no experts, there's no information really, it's all made up. So I'm just going to entertain myself by, you know, I'm going to vote for Trump or I'm going to vote for Brexit or, you know, yeah. I, all this sort of stuff. And, I I I think that era has just finished right so we're into an era of existential risk you know so so and I think that will do things to people's expectations of governments and expectations of their politicians would you elect Donald Trump right now you know if you were if you're having an election tomorrow to say who who would you think would be best to deal with this crisis would you elect a Boris Johnson you know would you elect these figures who are very entertaining and 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 people um you know find them amusing um but in a crisis like this, you know, is, is this what you want? I, I suspect that era has just finished. If you go back to, uh, you know, the high point of the neoliberal um, tide, you know, coming in from 1979, 1980, Thatcher, Reagan – I mean, it's probably Reagan's statements, if you remember, uh, where where he said that 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 you know they made the joke about the ten most terrifying words in the English language. I am from the government and I'm here to help. Yes, and that summed up brilliantly. And of course, Reagan was you know brilliant at, at the, you know putting a kind of folksy gloss on this actually right wing anarchic um, hatred of government. You mm. know. Uh, now, I'm from the government and I'm here to help is exactly what, you know, citizens of, of all systems and all countries and all cultures at the moment need. You know, you realize that actually you need big government and, and you need it to be able to be responsive and you need it to have capacity uh, and you need it uh, to have a sense of, of of equality has to be at the center of this. You know, and I, I think this is really going to challenge that whole idea that inequality is good and natural because, if you stand back from this, uh, what's been the great driver of progressive change over the last 200 years? It's actually been infection. It, you know the, the, the biggest single thing that that makes rich people think I can't insulate myself from the poor. I'd love to, but I can't do it is you know g- g- it's the what historians call the great sanitary awakening of the nineteenth century, you know clean water, plumbing systems, sanitation systems. That then leads into, uh, when you, you know, scientific capacity comes into mass immunization, then national health services. You know, these are the things which are kind of driven progressive change. And perhaps looking back, there's a sort of weird coincidence between the rise of neoliberalism and this period of complacency we've been in where the mass immunization starts to work. You know, and actually in most Western societies, you don't have all of these diseases. I, I was just thinking about this. I'm 62. My grandfather died of tuberculosis at the age of 32. Uh, my I'm my, glad that
8: you, rem, you you know you remember that, or at least you remember that piece of your family history, because yeah. I noticed Donald Trump was surprised that people could die of the flu, and his own grandfather uh, had died, uh, died of the, of the flu. flu.
4: Yeah, uh, uh, and my my mother's young sister died at three from diphtheria, which was you know, and my, my brother my own my brother died at uh, three months old, you know, from from a gastric. Infection that was in the hospital or something you know uh, and we we took the, i don 't mean we took for granted in a sense that we thought it was okay, it was absolutely terrible, it was shocking and mm. and appalling effects on people 's lives but I, you know i grew up i 'm not that old but I grew up in a world that was a world of Airborne infection, you know, and yes. and and therefore society had to be organised around that. I mean, I remember the, getting on the bus and there used to be a sign saying "Please do not expectorate." <laughs> and <laughs> I, 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 I was just thinking about a I, and, uh, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know what expectorate meant. You know, you knew it meant spit, but but even as a child, you knew because you know that was the world you you grew up in. There were. There had been a polio epidemic, for example, in, in Ireland in the late 1950s. So you know, I was in school, there were kids in calipers, for example, you know, with their legs which had been paralyzed by polio, which is a, was a virus. So we lived in a world of infection and, and that was terrible. But the, I said there was an upside to it. But what it did mean was that there was a very profound sense that disease was, was public. And what we've done, if you, if you think about the kind of coincidence of the neoliberal era with what we've done with health, we've privatized health, both in terms of structures very often, privatizing systems, but also you know, health is your responsibility. It's about your diet. It's about your exercise. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. Of course, they're not wrong because not all diseases is, is communicable. I mean, heart disease mm-hmm. and cancer and all the rest of it, but, but the sense of public health, which has been such a driver of progressive social democratic policies or liberal policies in, 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 in the American sense uh, over the last 200 years has been lost. And we're suddenly regaining it. I mean, health has just become public health again. Uh, And I think that has very profound implications for the way in which we're going to think about governments and the way we're going to think about the state and what our expectations of it are and how we organize societies. Such a great discussion. It was a real pleasure to hear that one again.
1: Now, Australian journalist Jonathan Swan made headlines this year for his explosive interview with then-President Donald Trump. But before that, he spoke with us about Trump's coronavirus response. He discusses Trump's obsession with polls and the stock market, why the president is so ill-equipped to deal with a public health crisis, and the moment when Trump realised COVID-19 was out of his control – Let's have a listen to that now.
15: There were two reasons initially why he was unwilling to uh, listen to his advisors. Number one was he has this obsession with the stock market. It's probably the singular – I remember covering – I've been covering him since 2015. And I remember covering him on the campaign and going to rallies And when you talk to Trump in that period, he was obsessed with the polls, right? And it was when he was polling particularly well, he was in the primary. It was something he could boast. He always needs a metric with which he can say, this is how good I am. This is the number that that stipulates exactly how amazing I am. And when the polls stopped being good, he turned to the stock market and the Dow became his poll. And he was obsessed with it. And it, colored so much of his thinking. Uh, it colored the way he thought about trade deals. It colored the way he thought about anything. And the best way to think about Trump is, and I'm not, it's not an original observation, but it really is how he operates. He's a day trader. He doesn't think in the long term. He thinks about what he needs to do to get through the next minute, hour, News cycle? What can I do and say right now to get instant gratification? And of course, when people started to talk about this virus in late January, it was something that only in his mind posed one thing, which was this could really screw up my beautiful economy and my beautiful stock market if people get overly spooked about it. He genuinely didn't think it was going to come here. And in his mind, you know putting in some travel restrictions was was going to sort of hermetically seal off america there was a period where he didn't want to let people in off one of these cruise ships because it would add to the numbers of people that were infected and so for the longest period of time mostly through february and early march that was the mindset what can we do and and then you had advisors going out saying we've got this thing contained etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there was this moment in uh probably around march 11th when it dawned on him that this was out of his control that this was not something that he could tweet away this was not something that he could you know describe as fake news or use his usual toolbox and that's been the greatest frustration for him because frankly he- there's been so many times in this presidency where commentators have said, this is the mortal blow or this will undo him, whether it be the the threat of his financial records coming out with Deutsche Bank or the Mueller investigation and Russia, or this is the final shooter drop. And he's actually constitutionally pretty well set up to manage that kind of uh, assault. But when it's something where you actually have to rely on, The government, which to a large extent he's gutted, um, experts, uh, bureaucrats, uh, the scientific community, uh, calm, measured, consistent public communication, this is not what Donald Trump does. So right now, for example, you have this situation where he has completely moved on from the public health messaging, explicitly so. He doesn't want to be out there talking about statistics or, you know, the need for social distancing. He is trying now to position himself as, in this election, the candidate who's going to reopen your economy, who's going to bring back the glory days of the economy. You know, he's out there not wearing a mask. He loves the visual contrast of him being mask free and Joe Biden wearing a mask. And that's what he's setting up for the fall. He's trying to defy... The reality of the current polling, which is that people are still very concerned about this virus, they're worried about going back out to their normal lives, and he is trying to kind of will it to be.
1: Jonathan Swan there. Terrific discussion. In this final clip, we move a little closer to home. China's $1 trillion Belt and Road Initiative has been a source of major controversy in Australia, with the federal government seemingly deeply concerned about Victoria's decision to sign a Memorandum of Understanding with China on the program. In September, I spoke with the head of the ANU Centre on China in the World, Professor Jane Golly, And in this clip, Jane argues that national security concerns about so-called debt-trap diplomacy are in actual fact not supported by evidence, yet are now part of common parlance all around the world.
6: The number of times I've heard the Belt and Road being accused of this cunning plan for debt-trap diplomacy. Honestly, I would be wealthy if I'd collected a dollar each time. And I do have strong views about it that are based on what I've read uh, widely about, including from work done here at the Crawford School. Um, I mean, basically, the idea of debt-trap diplomacy suggests that Beijing or any other government might deliberately go in and loan lots of money uh, to another country watch that country fall into the or find themselves unable to repay those loans and then use that as leverage against them to make them comply with their foreign policy wishes. Now, that is possible in theory, but I just can't see it making sense in practice. I mean, the idea that you'd sink lots of money in and just watch it go down the drain, that's your money going to waste there, particularly at this point in time, you know, in post COVID, uh, the world economy is crumbling, China's own foreign reserves are falling rapidly, like it's really important for them to make investments that are actually going to benefit their own investors. Uh, but also the, the motivation for, the, you know, it's such an indirect route, I think, for them to gain power that it doesn't matter. But the reason I think that most strongly. Is it the evidence that I've read and I've read about it in the African context, in Latin America and in the Pacific, um, very often we hear reference to the Tota port, isn't this a classic example? Well, actually, if you look at the, the facts closely there, and we've got, again, colleagues here at the ANU who have done that, there really isn't that much evidence or in, I'd go as far as saying any evidence that Beijing has deliberately done that. You know, maybe one or two tiny examples where it might play out a little bit, but overall, there isn't the evidence to suggest that Beijing has engaged in debt-trap diplomacy, and yet now it's used as kind of common knowledge and common parlance in describing the Belt and Road My
1: thanks to Jane and all of the guests and speakers that we have featured on today's podcast, because with that, that brings our special Best of Democracy Sausage episode to a close. But before I let you go, don't forget to subscribe to Democracy Sausage. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite podcasts from. And if you're feeling particularly satisfied with your regular helpings of Democracy Sausage, we'd love for you to leave us a review. We always love hearing your thoughts on the show. Finally, if you want to continue the discussion about this episode or any of our episodes, join the Pod Squad on Facebook. Type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook and you can chat directly with the pod team plus our community of listeners. We can't wait to see you there. We'll be back on Monday with our regular episode of Democracy Sausage. But until then, from me, cheerio.